And uh, if this is your first time here, this is the English service of Calvary Chapel, Freiburg. So we are a part of the, the church as a whole. And uh, I'm Brandon. I'm one of the leaders here of this service. And uh, I'm excited that you guys are here, and I'm excited to be here. This is one of my favorite parts of the week, being able to come and worship and get in the Word with all you guys. And afterwards, some fellowship and snacks. So, this morning... Uh, Alex spoke in the main service on Sunday morning uh, about kind of some vision for Calvary Chapel. And so with that in mind, I just want to start by, especially I see a few new faces here, so I want to start with kind of a little bit about who we are as Church at Five, a little bit of our vision. And we actually have three core values, three kind of uh, value statements that kind of make us who we are and help us to form the vision that we are, that we have as a church, or as a service. And uh, those are, number one is to be safe. And what that means is that we want to be a place where it doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter where you come from when you walk through those doors, that you can feel safe here, that we can, this can have a feeling of being at home when we're here. And uh, another one of our core values is to be authentic. And there's two ways that we want to demonstrate this, that we want to live authentically in our own lives, meaning we're real with each other. We're not lying to ourselves about who we are or what we are. We want to be real so that we can grow. But we also want to be authentic in our relationships with one another, that we want to be comfortable and and real in the sense that we can challenge each other and be able to express our needs and, and come to each other in our times of need and see each other's needs, hopefully before we have to come to each other. And so that's a big part of being authentic. And that only works when we're safe, when we feel at home and we feel safe. But our last core value seems to be controversial or to go against the other ones, and that's to be uncomfortable. And what that's about is that we don't want to be afraid to be uncomfortable because growth and change is necessary as believers, that it is necessary for us to be growing. That is a part of the sign of a believer. And we looked at that a lot the last few weeks uh, as we went through Galatians, that there's this fruit in our lives and there's kind of a transformation that happens as the Holy Spirit's working in us. And so sometimes that change can be uncomfortable and we don't want to be afraid to be uncomfortable here in this service. And a big part of that is through our relationships, that We're able to challenge each other, able to grow together and not be afraid when it's not so comfortable. So ultimately, our goal here at Church at Five is to be a place where we're being prepared, being transformed, being filled with the Spirit, being filled with God in our lives through the Word and through our relationships with one another so that we are ready to be salt and light in Freiburg, in our classes, in our workplaces, at home. We want to be salt and light. That's what we're called to do. And we want to be, this, to be a place where we're preparing each other for that and uh, that we would represent Christ in the world. So that is just a little taste of kind of who we are as Church at Five, a part of our vision, always to be moving in the direction of transforming and preparing one another to be that light and to be that salt in the world that God's called us to be. So today, we're starting a brand new series. That's what everybody's looking at. I was wondering what's happening behind me. Judges, Heroes and Villains. This awesome comic book theme picture. I really like it. 
probably saw it out front too. I'm really excited. Hoping I get to keep that poster hanging in my room somewhere, my office. So uh, I'm really excited about this series. I think it's going to be a fun one looking at the heroes and villains of the book of Judges. Uh, But before we dive into that today, I want to take a moment, pray, and give this time over to God. Father, we thank you so much, as always, for your word. God, that we can come here together, we can look at your word, and we can dive into it and grow from it and learn from the examples we see, for better or for worse, and that we can be strengthened, be prepared, and be filled with your spirit so that we can be who you've called us to be, representatives of Christ in the world, starting right here in Freiburg. So help us to be open to hear and to receive what you have to say to us as we look at your word in your name. Amen. So full disclosure, I want to start off by saying, if you haven't read the book of Judges, it is very graphic. It's one of the most graphic, in my opinion, by far the most graphic books and most dramatic books of the Bible. We see all kinds of things. It has a little bit of everything, and it has some very dark parts of it. It's got murder. It has rape. It has mutilation and scandals, even amongst family members who are betraying one another. And we see all kinds of examples of betrayal and fear, and idolatry, and revenge, and also some romance, and some romance tragedy, and a little bit of some unlikely heroes that God uses to do some great things. And that's going to be some of our focus. But something that's really cool in this book that makes it better even than Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or any of these other graphic novels is that there's an underlining of the greatness of God all throughout the book. And that's going to be something we're going to be trying to shed light on. So today we're going to start by going, just kind of looking at the book as where it comes from, a little bit of an overview of the book as a whole. And uh, the plan is to spend the next eight weeks looking through the book of Judges, which means that we won't have time to go through it verse by verse like we did with Galatians. We're going to be kind of looking at some key characters, and we won't even have time to go through all the characters because uh, it took us 14 weeks to get through six chapters in Galatians. And uh, I just feel like what we want to do here is kind of more of a comic book version of it where we're going to really be highlighting some key elements, some key characters, and what we can get from their experiences. So, We'll be examining a few heroes and villains, if you will, uh, that I believe we can learn from and we can grow from and hopefully uh, see as and apply some of their examples to our own lives. Because we see some awesome examples of how God worked mighty things, great things, great acts for his people through individuals, which is really encouraging. But there are also some notorious examples, some negative examples in, these, in this text, in these people's lives. And sometimes, in the same person, plays both a hero and a villain at different parts of their life. And, uh, but luckily, we can learn a lot from uh, the good examples and the bad examples, and that's going to be our goal. But to start, I want to look at the basics. 
some of this is going to be kind of boring, but I feel like it's a good idea to start with a little bit about the book, a little bit about the context of what's happening. So first of all, who wrote the book of Judges? Uh, there is some controversy, if some people might have know this, most of you maybe not, uh, on who actually wrote it, but most people say that it was probably Samuel just because of how the book ends, the way that uh, it kind of ends that there, he talks about there, there was no king in those days, which means that it was most likely written during the time of most likely the first king, which would have been Saul, which puts Samuel at as most likely the writer. I know you guys are just really interested by all of this, but I think it's good to have an overview of what we're talking about. If you don't know the story of who Samuel is, there's a whole, first Samuel is his whole story, you can see laid out, and uh, he probably wrote also the book of Ruth. Nice little bit of information for you guys. So, the next question is, when and where does the book t- take place? So, in the terms of the year, it started probably in the mid-14th century or the late 13th century to the mid-11th century. And I know you guys are just finding this all really, really important. I can see like it's all, the information's already beginning to drift away. But what is important is that this time frame was the time between Joshua and the time of the first king of Israel. And this is clear from the first verse. It starts with, in Judges 1.1, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites, they already are getting confused. They ask the Lord, who of us is to go up first against the Canaanites? So right at the beginning, we see the beginning of the time of the Judges is after Joshua and going up to the time of the um, first king. So, when I read through the book of Judges, I see it as this kind of dark ages, if you will, for the Israelites. Now, they had more than one like dark period in their history <laughs> from the very beginning. I mean, they were in slavery in Egypt, and they're lost in the desert. But in this particular season, there's this kind of just a particular reason why I would call it the Dark Ages. And that's to go back kind of where it all begins. So we go back, they were freed from Egypt by Moses. Moses was this godly man, this great man, although he didn't think so, although he did say he was the most humble man that ever lived, which is ironic. But he, he led them, he had a particular anointing, and he led them directly with the anointing of God on him and through some pretty amazing things, through the, the parting of the sea. And then he led them 40 years in the desert, led by a pillar of sand and wind by day and a pillar of fire by night. Just miraculous signs and wonders that God was leading through this one man. And then we see Joshua, who took over where Moses left off. And he led the people also through some pretty amazing things. We see some amazing battles. The sun stands still. That's pretty crazy. And uh, also we see examples where God parts the, the river and the, they walk on dry land and just all these amazing things. Again, though, this one leader that was leading the people, anointed by God to do so. And that's, 
goes all the way back to this promise that was given to Abraham, as we've looked at in the last series, and, and we're actually a part of that promise where Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Moses wasn't permitted because of some rebellion he had, some anger issues that he dealt with. And uh, so God didn't permit him to take the people into the promised land. So Joshua kind of takes over where Moses left off, brings the people into the promised land. And that's kind of where this book starts. And uh, for generations, the people were led. They were led all together as one nation united together as one people. And this ends after Joshua. And actually the people are never fully united as one, hardly again uh, throughout the entire history of the Israelites. They start to break off more and more as time goes on. They are again though mostly unified and led again by an anointed leader when we see the anointing of first Saul who then, of course, fails and disobeys God. And then ultimately, we see it with King David, who was anointed and by God and is also an image, of course, of Christ himself. And Jesus was an actual descendant of King David. So that's kind of this two time periods that, this, that this is, the book of Judges is taking place. So the leaders, these great leaders of Moses and Joshua, and then you see the anointed King David. And that's why I kind of feel like this is a bit of a dark age for Israel where they don't have this kind of one anointed leader that's uniting the people like they did before and after. So in this kind of dark age of the Israelites, we see these different judges who come in and are judging the people for, diff- for different Time periods. Now, what's interesting is if you added up all of the time of these different reigns of these judges, it comes to about 400 years. But uh, if you guys remember from the facts that I gave earlier, it was only about 200 years that this all took place. You guys already forgot. It's okay. And uh, this is because this, this didn't take place in one... All the judges didn't lead all of Israel. So you have different judges in different parts of the land. And so these stories aren't over the whole people of Israel, but different pockets, different tribes where this is happening. So a lot of the stories overlap one another. It's another thing to keep in mind. And in Judges 2, verse 6, it says, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went, ah, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. And this is why, where we start to see this kind of split of the people. So there were 12 tribes of Israel, and each was to inherit a different part of the land, which is why these stories sometimes overlap, because you have the different tribes in the different areas. And uh, this meant that they were kind of getting settled into their different areas and trying to get settled. And we won't really get into that a lot today, but there were people already living there. It wasn't just empty land. And uh, God kind of wanted to originally to just help them come in and take the land that God had promised to them. But because of their disobedience, which we'll be looking at a little bit today, they aren't able to take the land as quickly as they thought. So Joshua gets them into the land, but they live now amongst these different tribes as well. 
So, moving on to another question, who were the judges? So, there are 12 characters mentioned in the book that are referred to as the judges of Israel. Another interesting fact that I'm going to share with you guys, the word judges there in Hebrew is kind of more like troubleshooter or kind of problem solver in the sense that they were purposely put in position to deal with a problem, anointed by God to address an issue. But actually, only God is really ever, in Hebrew, used used as the word, the noun for judge, as in he is the judge over Israel. And the people, these judges, were only referred to in the sense that they had the action of judging, which is an interesting fact to keep in mind, that God was ultimately the judge over Israel, and these were people that God were, was using as a tool to do, his, to do his will, to see his will accomplished in the people and to, with the people of Israel. So I'll go through the 12 judges that in the order that they're mentioned in the text, and I apologize ahead of time and for the rest of the series of all of the names that I mess up. Some of them are easy, some of them are not. So, Othniel, Ehud, Ehud. Wow, it's a good start. Number two, already, already done. Shem, and now, now I'm like insecure about it. Shamgar, Deborah, or Deborah, depending on where you are. Gideon, Tola, Jair. Oh, this is a really fun one. Jephthah, Jephthah. Nice. Is, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. So, Those are the 12 that are mentioned in the book. But, as I mentioned before, this time period of the judges goes from the time of Joshua all the way to the first king. So, actually, if you were to be specific, Samuel is the last judge over Israel who anoints Saul to be the king. And uh, so, making him kind of the actual last judge. So, there's actually 13 judges over Israel during that dark ages of the Israelites. So we won't have time, again, to study all of them, but some are clearly put above others in the realm of importance in the text. It seems to be the ones who did the most or had the most interesting stories got the most written about them. But throughout this series, I do we're going to focus on three main ones, which is Deborah, or Deborah, which she gets two whole chapters of the book, and Gideon, who gets three and Samson, who gets four whole chapters, because he was just apparently really awesome. And uh, so these three are going to be the large, it's going to be our main focus over the next few weeks. And uh, really diving into these characters, because there's, they have the most depth. So we can really look at them, not just what they did well, but also what they failed at. And I think there's a lot of application in these three stories. And so we want to spend time on them. Um, but there are a few others seem to not get as much attention, but I do want to kind of throw them in here and there. And so before we move on, Shamgar has a very interesting story. Judges 3.31, he has a whole verse, which is a lot. So after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines, with an ox goad, which, very fun word. And uh, 
he too saved Israel. I feel like it's such, it's so interesting that, you know, he's, he gets just one verse and yet he did, I mean, a pretty amazing thing. Uh, So that tool mentioned is basically a long pointy stick. That's, it's really not much more than that. It usually would be like a long pointy stick with kind of a metal hook at the end used to direct the ox as they would plow. And he used a pointy stick to take on 600 armed men. That's pretty impressive. And yet he only gets one verse. So just to tell you how exciting the other ones are going to be, right? All right, good. So, and I love that. I love how nonchalantly it's just, oh, and he saved Israel too. So, you know, saved the nation, but whatever. So changing gears now. All throughout the book of Judges, there's this reoccurring theme that we see. And uh, that's where I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on. It's this kind of cycle the Israelites go through again and again and again. And uh, where they're obeying God, then they're, when they have a leader, they rebel against God. God comes in and basically allows the people that they're living with to oppress them they kind of regret that they turned away from god turn cry out to god god sends a rescuer and then the cycle repeats (laughs) and that is pretty much all through well all through the life of the israelites if we're being honest i mean even going all the way back from the very beginning as soon as they left egypt we saw this cycle where they're obeying they rebel they repent they obey And they just keep going in this cycle. And so it's no different in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, it just feels like a wheel that just turns constantly all through the book. So for this, I want to start with uh, looking at kind of this beginning stage of their cycle. And read Judges 2, verse 7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. And of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So this is like stage one, obedience, serving. They were serving the Lord. But notice though, they did this as long as their leaders were around. So it says that as long as Joshua was alive and the people who led with him. So he had some elders that kind of were around him that helped lead the people As long as these guys were around, they were serving the Lord. But as soon as they were not around, as soon as they died, things start to change. And these leaders, I want to just note this phrase here, had seen all the great things the Lord had done. That's a huge part of obedience. That's a huge part of that stage, which ultimately in our lives and the cycles that we will go through again and again, we want to try to stay on that part of our cycle, to try to stay in line with God, try to stay in line with obedience. And they had seen the great things that the Lord had done. And what's interesting is that they remembered it. They remembered the time that manna rained down so that they could eat every day. They remembered the times when the sun stood still, And God delivered them in battles. They remembered the moment when the river dried up. They remembered these great things that God has done. 
They had seen them and it was close to them so that when the leaders were in line and when leaders were remembering, we see the people followed. And for us, it's so important to know and to see God's greatness in our lives and to be constantly remembering the great things that he's done in our lives and for us personally. Before we go to stage two, which is disobedience, rebellion. And for this, I want to look at verse 10. So chapter two, verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. As soon as we start to forget where we come from, as soon as we start to forget the things that God's done in our lives, this becomes a real danger for us. When we forget the things that he's blessed us with, we become in danger of starting our own cycle. It starts with forgetting. That was the first step. Before they went into defiance, before they started to disobey, they forgot what God had done. They didn't know God as the God of Israel, the greatness of him. And that leads us away from him. So Judges 2, 11 through 13 where we see them fall into the next step, where they, they go from not just forgetting, but actively rebelling. So 11 through 13. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Astroths. <laughs> that was just a type of idol for you guys' information. So in verse 11, there's this phrase that we see again and again all throughout the history of the Israelites in this kind of wheel that continually turns that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This was always a thing that they kept coming back to, starting with forgetting what God had done, starting with forgetting where they had come from, forgetting, which is why all through the book of Psalms, even, even in the New Testament, we see reference to what God did in Egypt because it's so important for the people to remember the great things that God has done. And I, I don't actually have this in my notes, but I really just feel like I want to add to this that not only do we need to remember this in our own lives, but I think there's also an importance to being connected with church history, remembering the early church, remembering what the disciples did from the time of of Pentecost and and how they developed the community of the church and and how uh, knowing a bit of the church history is an important part of our walk as well, to not forget the things that God has done, seeing his spirit move and active throughout history, that we don't get caught in this wheel. So, back to my notes. When we forget that what God's done in us, in our own lives, we'll start to worship the things that are around us, as the Israelites did. They turned first to the gods of 
to other people. So they forgot what, who God was. They forgot what God had done for them. They forgot his greatness. And so they looked around and were like, well, these guys seem really happy worshiping this, you know, wooden stick. So, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, I guess. And I think when we start to forget what God's done in our lives and ultimately going back to the cross and as Christians today, remembering what Christ has done for us on the cross, as soon as we start to push that away as not the key focus of our lives, not this key part of who we are, a part of our identity, then immediately we're going to start looking around. All right, well, they seem happy only caring about the success of their careers. Maybe that is what I need to be focused on. They seem to only care about their education and how high they can get, or they seem to only care about, you know, how much stuff they have. They seem to only care about the latest Netflix series. Whatever it may be, we'll start to look around us and find our joy or try to find happiness in what everybody else, what the world has to offer, what the world is worshiping. And that's what the Israelites did. And, uh, but it, it starts with forgetting. I just want to keep emphasizing that. We need to be reminding ourselves what God has done in our lives. It's a real danger to start this cycle. And it always starts with this forgetting. And ultimately, again, forgetting the cross is going to be the most dangerous thing we can do as believers today. Because no matter how much we know or how much we've heard it, it can so easily drift from the center of our hearts. Now, why is God so angry? It says that God's anger was, was what's the word, kindled? Or there's a lot of different ways that he uses that phrase. Aroused against them, in my version. So, why was God so angry? Because it was his people. He had rescued them out of Egypt, led them through the desert. He built this nation from a family of nomads. And I mean, this nation at this point was massive, hundreds of thousands. It says that there are several uh, accounts in, towards the end of Exodus. It's an uncountable amount of people. It was just uncountable how many people the Israelites had grown to because God had blessed them so much. And it started with just one family with Abraham traveling around, not even having a homeland. God loved these people. They were his children. And I think children is probably the best way to see this. And also remembering that we are part of God's family, that we are God's children. We are a part of Israel, as we looked at in Galatians, that we're, the, we're a part of the promise that was given to Abraham, that when he looked up and saw the stars in the sky, we were one of those chosen to be a part. If we're a believer, if you're, if you're in the family of God, that you're a part of that family, you're a part of Israel. So this also something applies to us today. God didn't, God didn't do all this stuff. He didn't bring them. He didn't build this, this people. He didn't put these promises in place just to watch them fall or to watch us 
fall and our cycles that we sometimes fall into. He loves us too much. He cares for us too much for that, that he would let us fall and not help us back up. And that's where that anger comes from because like children, they were pushing the boundary of how far they could go until they went too far. Even though God laid down warnings, this wasn't like you know, a surprise. God had laid down warnings about what would happen and God is true to his word. So continuing to stage three, we see God's discipline come into play. For this, I want to look at Judges 2, verse 14 through 15, and 15. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. So this wasn't God just overreacting. It says that he had sworn he would do this. If you disobey, if you fall away, if you go in the opposite direction and start serving the God's that are around you, this is what's going to happen. And that's why he's angry, because he doesn't want this for them. He doesn't want to be against them. But he only does it because he's a God of his word. He's, he's going to do what he says he's going to do here in this text. He's going to be true to what he warned them he would do. And... Uh, he didn't, he didn't want them to fall away. He didn't want them to be completely lost. But he has to be true to his word. But the important thing is that God's discipline in this, in this case and in all cases is always designed with a purpose to lead us, to lead the people to repentance, to lead them back to where they were supposed to be, to lead them back to where they need to be. But first, a lot of times we get to that point of discomfort, which is where we see they were in great distress. When we get to this, the bottom, and we realize this, you know, I, I think of the prodigal son, which most people probably know. You know, when we get to the very end of our rope and we think, man, even, even the worst, even the, the lowest servant of my father or the lowest servant of God has it better than this. And we turn back to him. That is the ultimate goal. His discipline isn't fun. Trust me, I've experienced it. I know. And most of the time, it's this just kind of leading in our hearts, especially if we're close to God. It's a, uh, just a weight that we feel in our hearts. But I'm so thankful when God shows his love and caring enough to bring me back to where I need to be, to bring me back to what to the right path that he always had for me. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. I want to be very clear. So I want to look at a New Testament example, Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. 
Again, remembering that we are God's children. So this is God talking to us as children. It says, my son or daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son or daughter again. This is a part of our adoption. We talked about this in Galatians, but we're adopted into God's family. We see that clearly in the book of Galatians that we are adopted in and he calls us sons and daughters unconditionally. We're unconditionally accepted into his family. We can do nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to make it better. We've gone through all of that in Galatians. So I want to be clear, this is not that. This isn't, I need to earn my way back to God. Discipline is about God lovingly directing us in our lives when we go the wrong direction. And that's a good thing. And that's kind of what we touched on with this idea of this kind of battle that we face in our walk with God. And, uh, you know, Paul uses the example of kind of being torn between what he wants to do and what he does do isn't always the same thing. And there's this battle in our hearts. And a part of that battle is God's discipline. And I think when we're walking with God, when we're seeking God and we start to go off the wrong direction, it's really subtle. It's a, a voice in our hearts. It's a, that's not, that's not the right way. That's not the best for you. That's not the best way to spend your time. That's not the best way to spend, to invest. That's not the best way to move forward. And we can kind of just really quickly turn and trust him. But to be clear, you know, God is not causing anything bad to happen to us. Discipline is not the same as punishment. I want to be clear in that distinction. That punishment, a criminal is punished because they deserve a punishment for the crime they've committed. But we've been set free from that. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So we're free from from the punishment of sin because the punishment of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So we're free from the punishment of sin. Discipline is something that you do to a child. A child is disciplined so that it can be directed and raised up in a good way. There's a difference between punishment and discipline. God doesn't punish us. You did wrong, so now you're punished because we're free from the punishment, but we are disciplined so that we can be directed back to the right path that God has for us. And that's something that's done out of love. And that's the goal with discipline. It's always done, it always comes from love. And it's always for a purpose, for our betterment. It's never to crush us or to destroy us. It's always to encourage us, always to better us. We always come out better through God's judgment. Which leads us to the last stage, restoration. Through, when we, when we get to this point of repentance, we come to a place of restoration. And Judges 2, verse 16 Then the Lord raised up judges 
who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Hmm. It's always uh, good. It's always holy. It's always with a purpose that God disciplines us. It's always through the Holy Spirit. As Christians today, it's through the Holy Spirit who's transforming us. And we need to learn to hear that voice, learn to be led by that so that uh, we don't get to a point where it uh, becomes where we become too far off the road where God has to do something dramatic to get us back. It's only when we're radically rebellious that God has to do something radical to get us back. Again, done in love. But the closer we are to him, the closer we are to God and the closer we are to God's spirit in our lives and in our everyday walk, through our prayers, spending time in prayer, spending time in the word and spending time in community with other believers It's a good way to start that, to strengthen that so that we can be in a place where we're quick to hear when we're going the wrong way. We're quick to hear that subtleness of God directing us so that we don't have to go way off the road for God to do something dramatic to get us back. And looking back at at verse 16 then, the Lord raised up judges who saved them. And unfortunately for them, those judges were not perfect. They made a lot of mistakes, which is what we're going to be looking at throughout this series. They were far from flawless human beings. And ultimately, they died, which is when we see the people turning again away from God because they didn't have this leader to guide them. They didn't have this man of God, this leader that would direct them that was directly anointed by the Spirit to lead them and to guide them. But luckily for us, a judge was sent who will never die, will never fail, who will always be there for us. Jesus is our judge. Jesus Christ is our judge. He's our redeemer and he's always there. We don't have to, you know, wait till the next judge comes around, wait till the next leader comes is there to fill his position. We have a permanent leader, Jesus Christ, who leads us and guides us every day when our eyes are focused on him. So, in closing, I want to start kind of looking at two different kind of cycles that we may go through. The first is a cycle of sin, where we're, and we all sin, everybody All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible's quite clear on that. So if you think you're living without sin, well, we'll pray for you. Because there's nobody that's without sin. But there are these cycles sometimes that we have of specific sins that maybe we struggle with again and again. And we come to this place where we think everything's going well and then we fall back into this temptation and we feel like we're at the bottom and we repent And then we're going well again, and then we fall back into it again. And uh, there are these kind of reoccurring sins, these specific struggles that we may face. And we'll we'll see the consequences of them, sometimes directly. You know, if you have a problem with stealing, you might go to jail or something illegal. If you have a problem with cheating on your spouse, well, 
that's going to destroy that relationship. And maybe it will be restored, but there's a direct physical consequence sometimes when we have reoccurring sins. And that's a part of that. And that's just unfortunately a consequence of that. But there are also indirect consequences that tend to linger even longer, which is things like guilt and shame and regret that destroy and corrupt and erode us. And so these cycles are so dangerous. And I want to be, be clear that this is not an easy topic when we have reoccurring temptation in our lives that we struggle with. It's not an easy thing. There's not like just a quick do this and you'll never have a problem again, unfortunately. But one thing we see with the Israelites is as soon as their leader was gone, as soon as their eyes weren't focused on who they were following, they forgot who God was. They forgot their identity as the people of God, as God's people. And when they did that, they, fall, they fell so much faster into looking around and to the, to the gods of the other people, the peoples around them. They fell quickly into these temptations. So number one is keep your eyes on the judge. Keep your eyes on the leader. Keep your eyes on Christ in all areas of your life, in everything, in every day, keeping your eyes on Christ, walking with him as your redeemer and your leader. And if you're struggling with something continually, the second thing I want to encourage you to do is get help. If this is something that you're plagued with for years, get help. Find somebody, find a friend you trust, connect with them and pray with them, come to them. That's, again, what this is a part of our vision in this community. And I know there are some godly people, godly men and women in this place right now that are ready to be, to be available, to be praying. And so find somebody. And again, here it's always, always welcome to get prayer for anything. And so this is one place where this is a a safe place for that to happen. But if not, find anybody that you trust that's a godly person, has a foundation in their faith that you can come to with that and pray with and connect with and hopefully find uh, a leading out of that in your life. So before we run completely out of time, I want to encourage you, if you... Don't think that tomorrow things are going to be different, that tomorrow this, you're not going to deal with these cycles anymore if you're not doing anything about it today. It starts with now. You can't, nothing changes tomorrow that isn't decided today. So if you are struggling with something like that, make a decision and do something about it today. And another cycle I want to briefly touch on is the cycle of the everyday. Go to work, go home, watch TV, go to bed, repeat forever. That is not God's plan for anybody's life. That is not God's plan for anybody's life. God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. And we're called to be salt and light, number one. That's for everybody. That's all the the commission of God to go into all the world to preach the gospel was not just to a certain few. That's to everybody 
who is a believer. And so we have a purpose as believers. So I want to encourage you, don't get into that cycle of life of, you know, living for the weekend. Like, just get through the week, do something fun on the weekend, repeat again and again and again. That is also a dangerous cycle where we're wasting what God's given us. God, God's given us the gift of life. God's given us the gift of our health, of our understanding, of our wisdom. And so we want to use that to glorify him. Investing in our communities, investing in your church, investing in each other. Find ways to do things for God. Don't get stuck in the cycle of the everyday either. That's also an equally dangerous cycle and can lead again, I think, to forgetting what God has done in our lives when we're getting caught in the just every day. So I want to invite the band to come back up so that I have to hurry. Hmm. So the root of a bad cycle is all about who you're following. And I use the word root because I love to garden. I'm always in the garden in summer. I've already started my gardening prep. And we have these vines that are created by Satan and just kill all trees and kill everything that they touch in the garden. And I'm constantly battling with them every year. And uh, yesterday I was in the garden and there was a vine and the root was like, I mean, it was massive. And I just, I really realized that we, if we want to get to the root of these cycles in our lives, you have to kill it at the root. You can't just trim it back. You can't just try to fix the outside problems, but really find the root. And the root of it is always who you're following. It's where you're going, what your heading is. And so I just want to encourage you guys again, Keep your focus on Jesus, not on yourself, not on your problems, not on the things you're struggling with, but on Christ. Always on Christ, moving forward into what he has for you and the calling that he has for you. So we're going to sing one more song, and I want to encourage you guys to stand up, and we're going to sing about how great God is, and what better way to start keeping our eyes focused on him.